Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by TennisTours.com and TennisExpress.com. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Hopefully you guys notice a big difference in the audio quality as I'm speaking to you guys. I've upgraded my recording equipment again, and it's just another effort to try and make this show sound as professional as possible. And I'd like to thank Cliff Ravenscraft. He helped me figure out what was the best uh, equipment for me to purchase, and I'm really happy with how it's sounding. He is the host of the podcast Answer Man podcast, all about being a successful podcaster. So those of you listening who might be interested in being a podcaster yourself, or maybe you already are and you'd like uh, some better equipment or, or tips on how to make your show sound better, definitely check out Cliff's show, and that's at podcastanswerman.com. Thanks a lot for your help, Cliff. All right, we've got three great questions to talk about today on the show, so sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. All right, let's go ahead and get started with our first question. And our first two questions today are going to come to us from Megan in New Zealand. Her first question is as follows. Hi, I was listening to the Confidence versus Arrogance slash Expectation podcast, and it raised a question for me. Dr. Cohn talked about those tennis players that don't have a lot of self-respect that tend to look for respect from others. For example, their coach. This would have to be one of my biggest problems. I was wondering, what if you build up your self-respect and learn to have confidence in your playing ability, but that still doesn't get rid of the need to not disappoint your coach? Megan, that's a great question, and this is definitely an important thing to work on, and it's something that I very often struggled with in college. I had a hard time mentally in college. And looking back, that was due to several different reasons that I won't get into right now. But my my eyes would very often travel up to the viewing area during points and during matches, very often in between every point. I can remember having stretches of time where I I was just constantly looking up there. And and basically, I I wanted to see who my audience was. I, I was curious who had showed up to watch that day's match were my teammates watching? Was my coach watching? And if I'm honest with with myself, I, I know that I, I wanted to check out and see, like, all right, who who can I impress here? Who's watching that I can really work hard for and hustle hard for? If if I hit a really awesome shot on this point, who, who's going to see that? And I basically, like what you're talking about, you, you don't want to disappoint your coach, and, and and this is a recipe for a disaster. It, it takes your focus off of what's really important during your match. And your, your number one task at hand at, in any match is to win. That's, that's what you're trying to accomplish every time you go out there and, and compete. And when you're 
your focus and your attention is constantly being drawn towards others. You're constantly thinking about other people and what they're, what they're going to think about you, whether it be whether or not you win this match or maybe even how much you win it by, uh, and you put that pressure on yourself to try to make other people happy, you stop thinking about tactics, you stop paying attention to patterns in, that, that are happening right in front of you in the match that you're playing, you stop focusing on your game plan, and you, you're not very emotionally controlled either. It, it takes your focus off of controlling all of those things, your, your emotions, your tactics, your game plan. And obviously, that's not a good thing. When when your focus gets taken off all of those things and you start thinking about somebody else instead and you start worrying about what they're going to think about you, that's just not going to be very helpful to you. You're not going to be as successful that way as if you keep your focus on the task at hand and on exactly what's happening right in front of you. And don't feel badly about this, Megan. Um, like, like I said, this is something I had a really hard time with in college. And you'll see professional players that struggle with this as well. It, it's not uncommon, uncommon at all to see professional players on TV constantly looking up to their box for emotional support during tough matches. And not that it's a bad thing to you know want support and encouragement from those around you, but when you're literally in the middle of your match and have just finished a tough point and you're looking up towards your, your coach, your, your teammates, your friends, you know, with that whiny look on your face and it's like, oh, come on, what's going on here? And, and you're, you're like basically looking to other people to help try to get you out of the situation. Uh, that, that's not a good sign of mental toughness. The, the players who are most mentally tough that you see on TV, they are constantly focused and they're not allowing other people around them to, to break their concentration. So I have two suggestions for you moving forward to try to try and improve this. Uh, well, one, one is a suggestion on how to improve it, and the other one is just kind of a, a thought, uh, something that I want you to think about as you continue working at this. Um, first of all, I, I do want you to continue trying to develop your on-court focus skills. Keep working hard at competing for yourself and maintaining your concentration as you do compete. And I want you to realize that this isn't an all-or-nothing type skill. You, you do, you will have to continue working on it. It's not one of those things where, you know, either either you get it or you don't, and it's like a red red light green light kind of thing, and, and you're either succeeding or you're not. It's a it's a sliding scale, and so even though you you may feel like you've gotten better at this since you listened to that that podcast with Doctor Cohn, and those of you who haven't heard that episode. Uh, sorry, I don't have the episode number right in front of me, but Dr. Cohn, that, that's C-O-H-N, he's been on the show three or four times. He's a mental toughness expert, really, really good guest. And for those of you who have troubles with your mental game, I really highly recommend that you go to the podcast archives and download his shows. But I, the one that Megan's talking about, I think that's only, I want to say a month or maybe two months old at the most. Um, so, and, and however much time since you heard that show that you've been working on this, you can still get better, Megan. So, so don't think that, you know, this subject is, is something that you've conquered and, and you, you, there's no way that you can make this any better. 
and I've got three tips for you to continue improving your on-court focus and, and keeping your attention off of other stuff. First of all, develop a solid routine to repeat between points. And this is something that professional players reference all the time in their post-match interviews. They talk about their pre-point routine or their, their routine in between points. And this is typically things like, I, I think probably one of the best examples of this is Maria Sharapova. She has a very distinct routine uh, between points. Uh, she'll she'll walk back towards the uh, the back wall of the of the the court uh, she, while looking down at her strings. Uh, she'll think to herself what she wants to do in the next point. She kind of has the, uh, this little kind of hop up and down uh, that kind of signifies, okay, I'm ready, let's go. And then she'll walk up to the baseline and either prepare for the return of serve or do her service routine, uh, which is also very distinct. Uh, everybody, well, ever since Novak Djokovic uh, copied it and uh, kind of made fun of it a little bit, I think everybody is definitely aware of it. But anyway, she's a good example of somebody who has a really solid pre-point routine and she sticks to it perfectly every single time. That's a great way to always kind of calm yourself down, do the same thing between every point, something familiar, and that can help you maintain your concentration. And you can use that time to refocus your concentration on exactly what's happening right in front of you and continue to push out whatever thoughts you might have during the match about your coach or about whoever else might be watching, etc. Number two, learn to ignore everything going on outside of your court. And this is this can be really hard. There, there's a lot of distractions that could p- potentially tear our concentration away from the match. It, it could be other matches going on around us. could be family or friends that are just outside the court watching us. Uh, could be teammates or a coach watching us. It could be something stupid like, you know, a kid, you know, running around and, and screaming who's being distracting. Uh, could be lots of stuff. You know, somebody with a or listening to a radio, you know, maybe not even close to the courts, uh, but maybe you're, you're hearing music or maybe people playing a different sport outside the courts. It could be anything. And any, any, any of you who have competed at tennis for any length of time know that some days are, are easier than others to maintain your focus. Sometimes it just seems like whatever's going on outside the court, for whatever reason that day, your attention is just getting sucked away from the match. And that's a terrible thing uh, as far as being successful competitively is concerned. So continue to work on that, Megan. And number three, make all of this a habit through repetition. And again, these are things that you need to practice. And it's not an all or nothing kind of skill. Um, and, and so keep working at it and you'll continue developing this skill and you'll keep getting better and better at it. Lastly, I just want to say it's okay to want to make your coach happy. Don't think that you should be indifferent about how your coach feels about you. <laughs> I, I want you to work hard for your coach and do whatever he or she he or she tells you to do as far as, you know, d- during practice time, whatever exercises or drills, I mean, always work 100%. And, and from that standpoint, I, I do want you to, to work hard at making your, your coach happy and um, gaining his or her approval. Where, where it crosses the line is when you actually go out and compete for your coach. And that's your main 
uh, motivation out there is, is you really want to make your coach happy with you out there during competition. So don't think that wanting to make your coach happy is bad in general. I, I just want you to be clear about why you're competing, and I want you to play for yourself out there. And like you were saying, have that self-respect and, um, you know, I guess love yourself enough uh, to, to be playing for yourself and know that ultimately you're doing this for, for your enjoyment and, uh, you know, it's exciting to you and you, you love the sport. And th- those are all reasons why you should be competing, not just to make your coach happy. But wanting to make your coach happy in general is fine. Um, just be careful about using it as your primary motivation, uh, using your coach or other people as a crutch during matches. You need to stay mentally tough out there. Fight for yourself and and play to win for yourself. And that's uh, that's how, how I want you to think about it. So, Megan, great question, and hopefully this is helpful to you. I'm you know I'm not a sports psych- psychologist like Dr. Cohen is, but but those are my thoughts, and so I, I hope that's helpful to you. Thanks very much for being a listener, and we'll be getting to your next question in just a second. First, I want to remind you guys about the official sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast. That is TennisTours.com. That is the URL for Championship Tennis Tours. I'm going to be with them in New York uh, this coming week. I'm going to be there Thursday and Friday, and I'm going to be at the matches on Friday. That party that Will Hamilton of Fuzzy Yellow Balls is going to be at, I'm going to be there. And Championship Tennis Tours is putting it on. Is going to be Thursday evening. Let's see, this coming Thursday is the 9th, and that's going to be at the W Hotel in Times Square. If you guys want to go to that, you can either purchase a ticket through Championship Tennis Tours and you receive a free invitation, or send me an email and maybe I can hook you guys up. <laughs> uh, so shoot me an email, ian at essentialtennis.com. If you're going to be at the Open or you're you know just in New York City in general, send me an email and maybe I can get you into that party uh, with myself and Will and Championship Tennis Tours. But definitely check them out for um, any tournaments you guys might be traveling to, whether here in the U.S. or even abroad in other parts of the world. They've got great prices, great customer service, and please show them uh, you know, some thanks for, for being a, a supporter of the Essential Tennis Podcast. I appreciate their sponsorship very, very much. All right. Our second question again comes from Megan in New Zealand. She wrote and has a question about serving tactics. She said, hi, Ian, I have a question regarding tactics in the serve. When you serve and you've picked out your target and you're aiming for it, what do you do if your serve goes wide or the ball hits the net and you have to hit your second serve? Do you stick with your previous target or do you change it for the element of surprise? Or does it depend on how far into the match you are or the type of opponent you're playing, etc. Thanks, Megan. Well, Megan, this totally depends on the opponents and your your strengths and weaknesses as well. As do all tactical decisions; they're, they're all subjective, and they all depend on exactly what's going on in each individual match that you're playing. As with all parts of tennis strategy, there's lots of general rules that you guys should usually be following, but there will always be circumstances from match to match where you might have to break some of those rules to give yourself a certain advantage based on what your strengths are and what your opponent's weaknesses are. And this is one of those kind of situations. 
there's there are a few things that you should be taking into consideration, and I'm going to list three different tactical things that you need to keep in mind as you decide where you should be aiming that that second serve specifically. And this is this is probably a pretty common thought for most people because you know you, you pick out let's say you're you're serving down the tee on your first serve and maybe you just miss it by a couple inches, and so your opponent obviously knows where you were trying to aim that second that first serve and it's possible maybe they're going to try to get a jump on that second serve and maybe assume that you're going to serve there again or maybe they're going to assume you're going to serve someplace else to try to mix it up it depends on who you're playing and so there's three different criteria megan that i want you to look at as you try to decide where you should be aiming that second serve number one does your opponent have an obvious weakness and as an example, maybe their, maybe their backhand is much, much weaker than their forehand. If that's the case, do not be bashful about going to that spot over and over again. And I, I really can't stress this enough. I think too often recreational players think that good tactics, you know, to, do, to be a good uh, person at strategy, they have to be kind of sneaky and tricky and always mixing things up and never doing the same thing twice in a row. And that's definitely not true. I, I can tell you guys, <laughs> honestly, that I, I've definitely gone whole matches, either singles or doubles, probably at least one of each instance, where I've only served to one place to my opponent because their backhand was just that much weaker and I'm left-handed, and so my spin serve kind of naturally curves out towards a right-handed player's backhand. I know for sure uh, in doubles matches, I've gone whole matches to certain returners, either on the do side or the ad side, only serving to one place because I found out early that it worked. I found out that they were uncomfortable with their backhand, and and so just exploit it and just go there over and over again and don't don't feel like that's mean that's just good tactics and don't feel like you have to change it up necessarily if they really have a weaker side then just keep going to the well and make them have to make some kind of big adjustment either in the technique that they're using or make them have to run around it or make them have to try a different type of shot to try to be successful or something. Uh, But that's one example of choosing the same target. And that can be really good tactics. If you're, you're really, if you really have a good reason for going to that same place over and over again, an example of that would be a big weakness. So uh, that's number one criteria or or thing to, to think about to consider. Number two, do you have a pattern of play that works well for you over and over again? Even if it's not a major weakness of your opponents, a lot of times a, a certain direction of serve for you followed up by another shot can be really successful. And I'll, I'll give another personal example of that. Serving and volleying out wide on the ad side in singles has been kind of a, a go-to play for me. Uh, on hard courts, on on clay, I have a harder time serving and volleying. Is, is a lot tougher on clay, uh, but where I played uh, tennis in college, our our courts were really fast hard courts. And as I mentioned a second ago, I'm left-handed. Usually, my opponent's backhand was their weaker side, and so uh, 
serving and volleying to my opponent's backhand. I, I used to have a really good spin serve out wide, as most lefties do, on the ad side. And I would come in behind that pretty often. And you know what? Even if it was my opponent's strength, their backhand, I would still throw it in there pretty often. And even on a second serve, Megan's talking about second serves. I, I, I always had a confident second serve, and I would very often throw it in there as a change of pace and to keep my opponent guessing and off guard, uh, even on a second serve. So don't be bashful about using patterns like that over and over again. If you know that it's a, a big strength of yours and you're confident in it, even if it's the, the same serve that you tried the first serve, maybe, you know, in this example, maybe uh, I, I served out wide aggressively and made those two or three aggressive first steps, you know, into the baseline, making it really obvious I was serving and volleying. Um, I would very often just go ahead and go right back to it for my second serve, hit, hit a, a confident spin serve out wide and come right in behind it. And that just, that just shows your opponent that you're, you're not afraid and you know what you're good at and you're going for it and, and you're playing confidently. And that's a message that if you can send that to your opponents on a regular basis, you know what? Even if they hit a, a backhand return winner on me, I don't feel badly about throwing that in there once in a while uh, because it's really forcing my opponent to, to stay on their toes tactically. And I force them to have to go for that big return of serve. Whereas if I just kind of spun it into the middle of the box and just sat back there at the baseline, they're feeling no pressure to even have to hit a great shot. So think about that, Megan. What, what patterns or specific placements and uh, combinations of shots uh, do, you, do you usually use to the best effect? And that's something to keep in mind when you think about where to aim that second serve. Thirdly, have you spent a lot of time developing your aim and your accuracy and your confidence of your second serve? You need to ask yourself this. All of you listening need to ask yourself this uh, because many of you who are listening to me right now don't have the confidence to actually aim your second serve and go for its target and, and hit to a specific place. Many of you don't feel like your second serve is good enough to try to aim it, and as a result, you just kind of hit, you know, you're happy to just hit the box in general, and you're aiming for very general targets. If that's the case, then I suggest that you stick with whatever your most confident placement is on that second serve to avoid double faults, in which case your decision's kind of made for you on that second serve. So if you go for a big first serve and, and you miss it, then, well, you, your, your choice is pretty easy on the second serve. If you don't have a very confident second serve, you're, you're going to find yourself just going ahead and going with whatever the highest percentage placement is and highest percentage type of serve is for you on that second serve. And even if it's not the best tactical decision, in, in other words, uh, if your most confident second serve is just kind of a slow spin serve right in the middle of the box and your opponent is running around and hitting all forehands and crushing them, um, maybe you want to try for a little more on your second serve, but if you haven't spent a lot of time working on it and you end up just double faulting as a result when you try to hit to their backhand on purpose, then unfortunately you're going to have to go ahead and just go with whatever generic target is most comfortable for you on that second serve. So 
let me encourage you guys to work hard at developing a confident second serve. It's really important, and you should be able to aim it and place it. If you can't do that confidently already, start working on it because it can be a really big tactical advantage for you during a match. All right. Um, so, Megan, that's it. Hopefully, uh, that was helpful, uh, helpful to you. I want to thank you very much for both of your questions that I used in today's show. I appreciate you being a listener of the podcast. It's always great to hear from listeners in other parts of the world outside of the U.S., so it was exciting to hear from you. And hopefully today's show is helpful to you. Keep working hard at your game. Before we get to our last question today, I just want to remind you guys about the second supporter of the Essential Tennis Podcast, and that is Tennis Express. You guys can get free shipping for any order over $75 from Tennis Express. And when you use the promotional code ESSENTIAL, when you check out, you guys will support the Essential Tennis Podcast by, by showing Tennis Express your appreciation for, for helping me out. And this is the, uh, the last week in their, their trial period. And we're going to be reviewing how many purchases got made in the last four weeks sometime uh, this week and hopefully we're, we're able to work something out for the future and I'm going to fight really hard to get you guys some, some discounts and special offers and, and things like that uh, to thank you guys for, for your help as I continue to try to secure them as an advertiser here on the show. So TennisExpress.com and again promotional code ESSENTIAL. I really hope that I, I work things out with them moving forwards both uh, for the podcast and for you guys as well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our last question. This comes to us from Tim in Dayton, Ohio. He's a 3.0 player. He wrote and said, My question relates to judging if a ball is going out or not when I'm playing at the net. It happens so fast that I don't have much time and often hit balls that may have gone out. So he's got two main questions here. Number one, does the chance of making good contact affect your decision on close calls? And what, what he means by that, I assume, is if, if you can reach a volley easily, and does that have any bearing on whether or not you let it go uh, if you think it's going to be a close call? And then the second question is, what cues should I be watching to help make this decision? Topspin, etc. And do you have any drills to help with this? I know this is basic stuff, but I think it's a good topic. I agree, Tim. It is a good topic, and I like basic stuff. <laughs> That's kind of uh, uh, at the core of a lot of my, my teaching is just fundamental things. And, and this is kind of one of those topics that probably hasn't been discussed a whole lot around the internet is how to get better at judging whether or not passing shots or lobs are, are going in or out once you do approach the net. And I think that's probably one of the biggest areas that, that tennis players are a little worried about or apprehensive that can a lot of times keep recreational players from going to the net to the nets as much as they should be. So to answer your questions, Tim, number one, he was asking about uh, if it's an easier shot to make a play at. If I can reach it and it's a relatively easy volley, does that have any effect on my decision uh, to let it go or not? Yes, absolutely. Uh, an easy volley. Uh, if I'm receiving an easy volley from my opponent. Or if they're way out of position, and, and even if it's a kind of a medium to tougher skill level volley, and my opponent is you know way out of position from the shot I hit previously, I'll definitely play a volley that I know might be going out if I'm not 100% sure. You know, if I'm 
80% sure that the ball is going out. Or maybe if I'm only 30 or 40% sure that the ball is, is going out, and it's not like I'm running these calculations in my head, obviously, while I'm playing. I'm just using the numbers as an example here. Um, even if I'm just a little bit suspicious that the ball is going out, uh, or, or I'm, I'm pretty sure, either way, if I have an easy volley or if my opponent is out of position, I'll just go ahead and play it and, and play a really high percentage easy volley you know, to the middle of the court um, if they're out of position. Or if it's a really easy shot that I'm in good position for, and it may or may not be going out, I'm not positive, I'll just go ahead and crush it and put it away, uh, if it is that easy. Because it's just terrible to set up a point well, you know, you get you hit all those shots that it took to get up to the net, uh, maybe you even have your opponent really on the run and they're in a tough spot. And it's it's really deflating to uh, to go through all of that work and then watch their shot go right by your nose and turn around to watch it land out and it lands inside the line. <laughs> That's really frustrating. And and so if it is an easy shot, I will definitely play it, even if I, I'm pretty sure it's going out. Uh, second question, he was asking about cues to be watching for to help make this decision of letting the ball go or not. Uh, spin is definitely a big one and you need to watch the shape of the shot and the direction of their swing. If your opponent makes a very aggressive upward swing and you see that the ball is curving in the air, that's a shot that you're going to want to play more often than than a shot that's traveling straight and that they've either sliced or just hit flat straight towards you. Um, A slice or a flat type shot is going to travel farther given that it's the same speed as a topspin shot. So you definitely want to watch for heavy topspin. It can be easy to be fooled by that. Uh, So watch for a topspin swing and watch for a topspin ball path, which is going to be one that's curving back down towards the courts. Number two, cleanness of contact from your opponents, especially on a topspin type swing. Um, when they shank or hit off center a little bit, you should be able to hear that. And on a topspin swing, very often when your opponent hits it a bit off center, even if it's really aggressive and they've hit it super hard, that will add more spin and kind of cause a really aggressive curve back down into the court. So listen for that. And lastly, speed and height. You know, really obvious things, but those those are probably the two most important factors that you should be looking at. If the ball is traveling really fast and it's four feet over the top of the net, unless there's a lot of spin on it, it's probably going to be going too far. And again, I mean, I mean, really fast is a relative statement, and uh, a lot of spin is also a relative term. Um, so you, you're when it comes down to it, you're going to have to use your own judgment for this. And there's no set rule about which balls you let go and which ones you play. Um, this is something that you're just going to have to build your your judgment up on. And it takes a lot of repetition and a lot of experience. So drills to help you improve your judgment, Tim, definitely play as many competitive volley games as possible. And I've got two main suggestions suggestions for that. One in which you can just start at the service line and feed straight ahead to a baseline partner who's uh, across from you, back on the baseline on the other side, and just play it out. And, and I would uh, set a rule that there's no winners uh, on either of your two first shots. So, so you make that feed, your opponent can't hit a clean winner off of their first ground stroke, and you can't hit a, a winner off of your first volley either. 
Otherwise, you just restart the point again. Um, that way, you you at least get into the points, and you have you know at least two or three shots exchanged back and forth every single point. Um, it just kind of makes for a little bit better, more productive practice. Um, so you can play points out that way. You know, play a game up to ten and, and trade signs, or just stay at the net if you want to keep working on it. Or you can both start on the baseline and have one of you feed a short shot, a shot that lands in front of the service line on purpose. The other person comes forwards, hits an approach shot, and then you guys play it out. And that's a way you can work on your approach shot and your volleys and your judgment up at the net. Uh, So there's two ideas for you for competitive games and do it in a competitive environment. Um, Cooperative hitting can be helpful as well. but in cooperative hitting, you're really just trying to get everything back and be uh, as consistent and keep the rally going as, mu- as long as possible. In competitive games, you're actually trying to win the point. And so it kind of puts that pressure on you to make the right decision. And I think that's where you're really going to develop your skills at judging where the ball is going exactly the, the fastest and the best. So in wrapping up, as I said earlier, there's no, real, there's no secret to this, Tim. It takes a lot of experience and a lot of repetition and it's something that can both be developed and lost. It's a, it's a learned skill. I can tell you that my judgment is not even close to what it used to be. Uh, I definitely used to be able to tell within several inches where the ball was going to land across a wide variety of speeds and heights and amounts of spin. And um, my, my judgment's way off now. When I, when I go and I play a full speed uh, point and I'm at the net, and I, I have my opponent hit, you know, a, a 5-0 level heavy topspin passing shot. Um, I definitely let shots go now that land well inside the line. And I'm, my eyes just aren't adjusted anymore to the, the same speed of shot that they used to be when I was playing competitively on a regular basis. And so it's something that you can lose. And it's also something that you can develop. So don't be frustrated about it. The more you work on it, the better you're going to get at it. Uh, keep working hard at it. And uh, I know that you can improve. So Tim, thanks very much for being a listener. Thanks for your great question. Hopefully this was helpful to you. And good luck with your game. Keep working hard. All right. That brings episode number 134 of the Essential Tennis Podcast to a close. Thank you very much for taking the time to download today's show and to listen to it. I really, really appreciate your, your support by just, just by being a listener and just listening to the show. I, I hope it's been helpful to you guys. It's always my goal when I record this show. And I hope you guys are enjoying the the new audio. Maybe it's not a big difference for some of you guys, but for others it probably will be. I'm kind of a, a techie, and uh, I used to be a, a sound technician you know, way back in, in high school and college. Uh, so it's something I enjoy tinkering with is audio quality in general. So I uh, finally made the, the plunge and, and really purchased some serious equipment. <laughs> and I'm really happy with the results so far. And I hope you guys, uh, I, I hope it makes the show more enjoyable uh, for you guys. It should definitely sound uh, much higher quality. So I'm really excited about that. All right, uh, that does it for this week. Shoot me an email if you guys are going to be in New York this coming week, Thursday or Friday. I'd love to meet up with some of you guys. And uh, I'll be going to, to watch on that Friday. Um, again, ian at essentialtennis.com. I'm really looking forward to that trip. And I'll tell you guys about it next week. All right, until then, take care. Thanks very much, everybody. And good luck with your tennis. Bye.